0: So this Jewish mother brings her little child to the beach. And he's sitting on the beach and he's playing with his little bucket and his little shovel, building sand castles. And all of a sudden, a giant wave comes crashing onto the shore and picks up the little child and brings him out to sea. And the mother, she turns heavenward, she says. Oh, God, please, save my child, do a miracle, save my child. All of a sudden, just like the wave came crashing onto the beach, the wave settles back in the same spot and drops the little child back down in the exact little spot where he'd been playing like he'd never, like he'd never left. Just, boom, places him right down in the exact same spot. She looks up at heaven, she says, he had a hat. <laughs> I don't know. You know that one. That's an, old, that's, an oldie, that's an oldie. He had a hat. Okay. This week's Pasha, Pasha's Devarim. You're going to see the tie-in. The joke always has a tie-in. You know that, right? Okay. This week's Pasha. Towards the end of the first Aliyah, Meshe Rabbeinu is giving his farewell address to the Jewish people. And he gives them a bracha. He says to them, Hashem aleichem, Hashem, the God of your fathers, Yisef aleichem should increase upon you, meaning increase you, increase your numbers, multiply you, population wise, literally. Kachem elef Pamim, as you are times a thousand, a thousandfold. eshem kasher diber lohem and Hashem should bless you as He promised you. Okay, so it sounds like there's two things here. First, Moshe says Hashem should multiply you a thousandfold, and then, and Hashem should do as he, as he told you, as He promised you. What are these two different things? Rashi actually explains that this verse is a dialogue. It's just we don't hear, you know, it's sort of like a phone conversation where you hear one end of the conversation. So we don't hear the, the other part of the conversation, but the Torah Shabbal fills it in. The Sifri explains, and Rashi brings this in his commentary, and says that basically these two lines that Mesha was saying, it was his first line, then B'nai Yisrael gave him an answer, and then he answered back. So now let's fill it in the way it really goes. The way Rashi explains it is, Yesh of Kochem Aleph Pamim, Ha- 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 Meisha says, Hashem should increase you a thousandfold. And then Rasha asks, mahu shuv? So then why after that? Does it say, kasher dibo he should bench you like he said he would? Ella, but rather, here's the story. Umru Lai, They said to him, B'nai Yisroh says to Meisha, after his first line, after he says, Hashem should bench you a thousandfold, right? Okay. So then B'nai Yisroh says back to him, Meisha! You're putting a limit on our bracha. Why only a thousand? A thousandfold? Why only a thousand? <laughs> the Holy and Blessed He already promised our ancestor Avram. What? What did He tell him? If someone can count the stars, then they'll be able to count your descendants, meaning infinite growth. So you're giving us a thousandfold. Hashem already promised us infinite growth. So why are you limiting it? <speaking in Hebrew> so he said to them, Zu When I said a thousand, that was mine. I was giving you my bracha. However, you're right. Who, Hashem, eschem, is going to bench you lechem, like he already told you he would. So those are the two lines. <laughs> H- Meisha says, Hashem should multiply you a thousandfold. Hashem should do to you as He promised. Basically, Moshe says, Hashem should bench you a thousandfold. And you'd be like, only a thousand? <laughs> a thousand was my thing. I, that was the, the, the gravy I put on top. But the, the, the stake is what Hashem already told Avram. He's going to bench you and, and multiply you a thousandfold. Okay. Why does Moshe speak in a way that is able to be misunderstood. Why does Meisha say it in a way where they have precisely the reaction that they have? In other words, if Meisha's adding his own interpolation of the bracha, let's call it, why, why does he say that first and then they get scared and then he's oh yeah yeah but that was just my thing and then you're right the the real bracha is the one that you know about that was promised to you by by since and 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 then furthermore why does Moshe even have to add his own bracha to it like what's the point of it like why talk it like just exactly as they as the Bnei Israel complained, like why are you talking about a thousandfold when we have an infinite promise so the whole thing's a little bit difficult to understand. If we can understand this story, we can also understand, in general, tefillah, davening, when we pray. Why do we pray? Hashem knows what we want, so why do we pray? Also, if we understand this story, we can understand how we're supposed to observe Tisha B'Av. Tisha B'Av is coming up in uh, less than a week. So how are we supposed to observe that? How are you supposed to observe these nine days that we're in right now? Devodim is always in the nine days. There's a concept that the the Parsha, there's a tradition from the Shalah that the Parsha is always connected to the time of year. So there's some type of connection between Devodim and the nine days. So anyways, we want to understand this story. We want to understand also in general the idea of tefillah. And we, under, we, we, want, we want to understand how to properly observe the nine days and, and, and Tishabov and the connection between this story from Parshus Devarim and, uh, and the nine days of mourning for the destruction of the Holy Temple. Okay? Mm-hmm. Fine. So that's, that's our agenda here. I'm going to tell you a story. Story is that before the Baal Shamtav was revealed, he used to travel around with his uh, Talmudim, with other Tzaddikim Nistarim, with uh, hidden incognito holy people, and uh, so one time the Baal visited, hey There, Tov visited a very poor man and woman who lived in a little uh, cottage outside on the outskirts of town. They showed up on an Erev Shabbos, the Baal Shemtav and his Talmudim showed up on an Erev Shabbos, and uh, they basically invited themselves for Shabbos. So like I said, this, this poor couple, they didn't have money which that's what it means that they were poor. So they didn't really have Shabbos fare that was suitable for guests, especially multiple guests. So they took all the money in their house and they, they went to town and they bought the uh, Shabbos food and they cleaned them out. That was it. They had to drain the savings account. That was it. So, and they were happy to do it because they were poor, but they were happy with their lot. They were always satisfied, even though they had very, very little and they were happy to, to be hosts. Anyways, after shabbos the balsham says we're going to stay okay well they're going to stay they don't have any more money they don't have money so and they already you know they spent everything they started selling stuff in the house so they took whatever the valuables they had whatever they had didn't you know didn't have much and they went to town they sold it and they bought you know brunch for sunday morning bagels and lox whatever you know they brought it back balsham and his tamidim to eat comes monday says we're going to stay so they they look for more stuff to sell Tuesday, Wednesday, each day, <clears throat> until finally, the guy has nothing left to sell, um, and he doesn't want to be rude, he doesn't want to say no, he doesn't want to say, I, I can't do it, so finally what he does is, um, he looks at his wife and says, you know, our one way of making Parnosa our livelihood, not much, but we have this little scrawny cow, and the scrawny cow, you know, the scrawny cow gives milk. A little bit of milk, not much milk, it's a scrawny cow. But the scrawny cow gives milk. And, uh, you know, that's what we live on. But we sold everything we have of value. And now it looks like we're going to have to sell the scrawny cow. Now we're going to sell the scrawny cow. That's our entire means of making a livelihood. But what can we do? The, the, this, this, and he doesn't know it's the Baal Shemtub. He doesn't know it's even a tzaddik. He, he just knows it's a Jew who wants lodging. He says, but these guests, they want our hospitality. So... let's do it let's sell the scrawny cow so the wife she was also very kind and she was also very very humble and simple and she says to him okay go sell the scrawny cow so he goes to town he sells the scrawny cow and after he sells the scrawny cow it dawns on him this is it like you know his whole life he never ever complained about money he never davened for parnossa Um, he was always content to get by on what little he had but now things are serious because now he sold the scrawny cow see The scrawny cow wasn't much, but at least it was a way of making a living. Now that's gone. There's no way of making a living. So he was depressed. He started walking, and he walked into the forest. And as he's in the middle of the forest where no one can hear him, or so he thinks, as you'll see, he says says a prayer. He says, Hashem. In my whole life, I never davened for parnossa. I never asked for money. I was always content to get by on what little I had. But now you see, I sold the scrawny cow even the little meager amount of livelihood that we're able to scrape by selling the the milk from the cow now i don't have that we have nothing and uh... i've never done this before hashem i've never done this but i have no means to making a livelihood anymore i have to ask please hashem help me we need money so as he's davening he hears laughter. In the middle of the forest, which is very strange, why is he hearing laughter, he looks over, and he sees the town drunk. The town drunk, he knows who the town drunk, everyone knows the town drunk. The town drunk's lying in the forest, and he's laughing. And he says, listen, you look like an honest guy, I'm going to tell you my secret. I guess, it, I, I just have to tell someone my secret, it's too delicious to keep to myself. You see, everyone thinks I'm a drunk. They don't know. I'm a man of leisure, this is a lifestyle choice, this is, this is how I want to live. I'm really very wealthy, they think I'm just a bum, I'm not. I have a fortune, I keep it here in the forest, in the tree, in gold coins, and I go into the forest, I take a gold coin out of the tree, I go into town, and I buy drinks with it, and I get drunk, and I come back in the forest, I pass out, and the next day, I take another gold coin, and do it again, and I have enough to do this for the rest of my life, nobody knows my secret, and now you know, and I trust you. Very strange encounter, okay, fine. Whatever I don't, I don't know what the connection is with that, and you know, davening for money. I mean, this, 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 is, this money belongs to the drunk guy. Okay, all right, fine. The next day, our protagonist goes into town to go um, look for work. He doesn't have any means for making a livelihood, so he figures, I'll maybe I'll do some menial labor. I have two hands. I'll I'll go work and I'll I'll schlep. I'll um, I'll do something with my body and I'll and I'll make a couple coins and. You know, maybe we'll be able to eat today. So he goes into town to see if he can get some, uh, a, a, you know, basic, like, uh, day, day employment. And as he heads into town, he sees there's a, there's a funeral. So he asks, oh, no, who died? They said, oh, it's the drunk. And he has no family, nobody to pay for the funeral. The Chavra is paying for the whole thing. The burial society is paying for the whole thing. He, he died. He just realizes, you know, a light bulb goes off. And he runs back to the forest, takes the gold coins. This, this drunk died. He has no heirs. He has no family. Takes the coins. He goes to Chavar Kedisha, He pays for the funeral. And he gives a nice extra bonus. And with the, with the money that's left over, he goes and he starts a business. And with the business, he starts making real money. And one thing leads to another. He becomes very wealthy. Extremely wealthy. He becomes so wealthy, he moves out of his little town, he moves to a big city, he buys a big house, and he becomes a a very uh, respected head of the community. Now, after he became wealthy, this gentleman, he had a pastime. He used to use his money to go travel. Uh, The kind of tourism he did was he liked to do Tzaddikim tourism. He would go meet rebbe's. He would go if he would hear about a holy person. He would go to that tzaddik and get a bracha, and uh, that was his thing. That's what he liked. That's what he spent his money on. So he hears about this tzaddik called the Balshamtiv in Mezjubush. So he travels to Mezjubush to meet the the holy Balshamtiv. And as he comes face to face with the with the holy Balshamtiv, he recognizes him. This is the guy who came to our house years ago. Remember, our story now is years in the past. This is the guy who came with his friends to our house on Erev Shabbos, didn't leave, invited himself, stayed for a week, and literally ate us out of house and home. And this is the, the holy Tov. Now he knows. You don't second guess at Tsadiq. He knows that the Tov knows what he's doing. But it, it, it's so confusing. He says, Rebbe, I'm not questioning, but it's so difficult to understand what happened the first time that we met. Balshemtav says, Yeah. I can explain that. Let me tell you something. You're rich. You know why you're rich? Because you had a fortune with your name on it in heaven. It was allotted to you and your wife. Pano says because of the wife, usually. The money was in your bank account up there. There was one little problem. You never made a withdrawal. You never went to the bank and made a withdrawal. So you have the money in your account. You never asked for it. You never Daven for parnasa your whole life. And I knew that the problem was the scrawny cow. That as long as you had that illusion that, oh, this is our means to Parnasa. You were limiting it. You were limiting Hashem. So I knew I had one mission when I met you. I had to get that scrawny cow out of your life oh and force you to go ask Hashem to give you what Hashem wants to give you. like Zeina Hasog is, according to his broad thinking, not your limited thinking. So that's the story. Let's talk about our parsha. Meshe Rabbeinu says to the Jews, this is his farewell address, he's getting them ready to enter Eretz He's finishing up his work with them. And he says, I want to sort of you know, tie a few uh, loose ends up here. And I want to make sure that you uh, receive your bracha. And I want to give you a bracha. It's really Hashem's bracha for infinite growth. But I'm going to state it in human terms. Who can speak about infinite? We don't even know what infinite is. I'm going to state it in human terms. It's a figure of speech. You know, like I've told you a million times not to exaggerate. Okay? It's a figure of speech. Or like when we say that for Hashem that uh, that uh, a thousand years is a day, right? It's a figure of speech. So, Hashem should multiply you a thousand times. It's a figure of speech. It's a way that human beings, a way that finite creations talk. However, what do I want you to do when you hear that? This is Moshe talking. What do I want you to do when when you hear me say that? I want pushback. I want you to say, hold on a second. Only a thousand? He had a hat! (laughs) He had a hat! What are you talking about? He had a hat! You're right. You're right. You're right. It's not a thousand. It's infinite. (laughs) Kasher diber. Like he said, like Hashem said. And that's the key. It's not chutzpah. It's not, I'm trying to see how how tough I can be in the negotiating room, how, how far I can push. I'm asking for what's mine already. Like Hashem said, Hashem already said, Hashem already promised to have vino infinite growth. So it's not like I came up with this idea. This was told to me that this was the deal. So if I was told infinity, I just want to make sure when you say a thousand, you don't mean that literally. So Moshe was really teaching us how to pray. Moshe was teaching us that Hashem has promised to give us everything. Hashem wants it to be good for us. And when we're lacking, it's not that we're complaining, it's that we're saying, hold on a second, Hashem! You already told us that it's going to be good for us. We don't want to limit it. And that's the connection to the nine days. We all know Mashiach is coming. Eventually. Right? Eventually. No. can't be eventually. Hashem, you told us. You told us that this is not how it ends. The Golis is not the end. The gole is the end. We didn't come up with this idea. This isn't our idea. This is your idea, Hashem. And therefore, we are, we're demanding, give us your promise, according to your broad thinking, not ours. You know, there are people who will tell you that of course, we want Mashiach, but let Hashem figure out the timing. Let Hashem figure out when to bring Mashiach. It's like a very casual attitude toward something that forget about the fact for a second, how many people are suffering in Gullis, how many people are suffering with with, with all types of issues, the health and, 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 and money and, and family issues and, and and emotional issues and trauma and so just the cruelty of saying, Yeah, let's wait it out a little longer. I'm just uh, but let's forget about that for a second. And let's just address this primarily from a theological perspective. Hashem is the one who told us that the whole point of creation is to end with a perfected universe. Where this earth becomes holier than heaven. So, it's not about me. When I'm complaining, it's not me saying, oh, what can I get? What can, how can I milk Hashem to give, to give me a better deal? No, 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 no. Hashem already promised us infinite growth. Not to ask for it is to limit Hashem. Not to ask for Geula now is to limit Hashem. I'll tell you, there's a, a well-known Pesach, very, very well-known, <clears throat> from, uh, from the navi, from the Prophet Yermiyo, about Rachel. Well known pasuk about Rachel, Rachel Imeno, about our, our, our matriarch. Rachel Mavaka Al Baneha, right? Rachel, Mama Rachel. The matriarch Rachel, she's crying for her children, that means for the Jewish people. It's a very beautiful concept that Rachel isn't buried in Marasa Mechpela and Chevrain with the other, obviously, in She's buried on the side of the road. Why? Because that's the way where the Jews were taken into Gaulus, and the first Galus when they brought into Baval, and she comes out and she cries for them, and just like she cried for them when she was when they were brought into Gollis, Mama Rochel's crying for the Eden in Golis, That the matriarch of the Jewish people sees the Jewish people in their exile, both sociopolitically and metaphysically. She sees us estranged from our from our true selves, from our essence, and, and she cries for us. I want to tell you though, mighta beer on this pasuk from from the Alshech. I'll read it to you the simple way, and then I'll tell you the al sheik the way the al sheik reads it. Simple way is, amar Hashem, This is what Hashem says, nishma, A voice is heard in rama. It's a place. Bechi wailing, crying, bitter weeping. There's three words that mean crying. What is the crying? Rochol mevaka alboneha. Rochol is crying for her children. Manoli linochim alboneha. She refuses to be consoled for her children. She's inconsolable. Ki einenu, because they are not. Because they are are gone. She refuses to be consoled for her children who are gone. Who are gone into, into Golis. Okay, that's the simple meaning. Which is Already incredibly moving. I want to tell you how the al reads this. Al-Sheikh says like this: Really, it's a funny word, rachel mevaka. If you know a little dikduk, if you know a little grammar, it should be beichia. Beichia would mean rachel cries. Mevaka means she makes to cry, right? That's what that prefix, that mem. Mevaka, that formulation, she makes to cry. She makes people cry. Not rochobaychiyah rochob cries. mevaka. she makes cry. So the alshech says like this. He says on marshal that there was once a, a, a woman whose baby was sick. And she went to the doctor and the doctor says we don't know if he's going to live for 24 hours. And she brings the baby home and it's Shabbos. And it's Friday night in the house and it's dark shabbos candles already went out it's dark there's no light and she can't see if her baby is alive or not alive she doesn't know what to do so what does this mother do she knows that when babies hear crying right every mother knows this and fathers too to some extent that when you know the chain reaction right the toddler wakes up with a nightmare and then the baby wake hears the crying and wakes up and then and then boom 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 boom, boom domino effect and everyone's crying including the mother and father. So she knows the, the trick that when, when a baby cries, when someone, when someone cries, when a baby hears someone cry, a baby starts to cry. So what does she do? She starts crying. But she starts crying a little bit at first, whimpering, small crying, to see if that's enough to get the baby's reaction. But she doesn't hear anything. So she cries a little bit. Longer, a little bit more intensely, a little bit louder. She doesn't hear anything. So then she lets loose. She starts wailing to hear if the baby cries. This is, the Al-Sheikh says, this is what it means. Three types of crying. One more intense than the other. First nehi, then Bihi, then samrurim. Samrurim means bitter tears. Then she ups the ante. She gets more and more intense with the crying to get the baby to cry. She's trying to get her baby to cry. And she hears nothing. She hears nothing. She refuses to be consoled for her child. Because he's not, because he's not crying. She refuses to be consoled over the fact that her child's not crying. So the Al-Sheikh says, this is a moshal for all Klal Yisra, That Rachel is up in heaven. Kael berrama. Rama also means in the heights. In Himal. And she's crying. Not Mevaka. <speaking in Hebrew> she's trying to get the Jewish people to cry. Her children, her babies. We, us, we're her babies. And so she lets loose a little cry. And he Samrurim. And she's trying to get us to cry, but we don't cry. She will not be consoled about her children, who are not crying. Because the greatest grief for the mother is that the babies aren't even crying anymore. If they're not crying, it's a sign that, God forbid, they're not alive. The fact that Jewish people refuse to be complacent in Gullus, refuse to stop crying, is a sign of life. It's a sign of life. So when it comes a nine days, it comes a Tisha B'Av, what is the reaction? How are we supposed to conduct ourselves? How are we supposed to feel? We're supposed to cry We're supposed to weep, not because we feel like broken people, we feel like helpless, hopeless people, to the contrary. Because we know, Hashem promised us something, and we have every reason to expect it. Hashem has promised us infinite growth. So set aside, like I said before, all of our personal reasons for wanting Mashiach. Set aside all of the human suffering that's in the world right now. Set that aside for a second. Hashem promised. If you're not screaming for Mashiach you're limiting Hashem. You're saying, eh, "Maybe you can. Maybe you can't. It's okay. You know what? Hashem, it's fine. You could. You could give me half of what you promised." No, Hashem said infinite. We're demanding infinite. And if Misha, even Misha, says something that leads us to believe for even a second, maybe he's negotiating us down. Maybe it's only a thousandfold instead of infinite growth. We say, "Hey!" He had a hat. That's not what we were promised. That's not what we were promised. We, as Claudia said, we have to say, we were promised not just things get better. Better could mean twice as good, ten times as good, a thousand times as good. No, no, no. We were promised things are going to get infinitely good. And we're going to keep crying out until we get it. It should be Now.